Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Decoding Society. This is your host, D'Angelo Starnes. Today is Sunday, June 24th, 2018. And um, I'm really excited for today's show. Um, but before we get to our special guest, I uh, want to welcome in from the left coast, our co-host, Christopher Cascard. What's up, brother? Hey, what's up, D? Good to be here. All right. Okay, man. Well, uh as I just said, man, we got a special guest. Um, she was, uh, she is a doctor of clinical psychology. She's a hip hop activist and community organizer. Um, she's a, was a candidate for the democratic primary in the democratic primary for the third congressional district seat in Alabama. And she was formerly uh, a co-host herself here on the Decoding Society uh, back in 2012 and 13, uh, along with uh, Tony Blackman. Uh, we had a segment we ran, I think, on Wednesdays <clears throat> about uh, the psychological impact of racism, and uh, we dove in for quite a number of those. Dr. Adia hey. McClellan Winfrey, uh, more hey, affectionately hey. known as Dr. Adia. Uh, all right. Yes. How are you? Yes. Hey, I am wonderful. D'Angelo and Chris, I'm also. Great. Um, Good to have you. And Thank you. Thank you. Back. Happy to be here. So the last uh, thing I mentioned was that you were a um, candidate for the uh, third uh congressional district seat in Alabama in the Democratic primary. And Mm -hmm. uh, my first question is that um, I'm interested to know uh, what uh, about, you know, how your background, you know, uh, played a part in your decision to run for that seat. Because when I I saw it on Instagram and and it fucked me up. I was like, oh, (laughs) he's out of a comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was just that fast. Like, seriously, I um, have been involved in politics as far as volunteering with campaigns since I was a child. I've always had this interest and desire to affect change in that way. And uh, things changed for me, though, uh, after I volunteered with the Doug Jones campaign last year here in Alabama. I worked with my county Democratic Party. They asked me to come on board and kind of help with the momentum and and making sure that we had a good turnout within the uh, African-American voters. And so I put a couple teams together, and the last, like, three weeks of the campaign, we just went hard, and we actually flipped the county blue. It typically always goes Republican, but um, it went Democrat for Doug Jones, and so uh, my work was recognized over the uh, the weeks following the election, and um, I was at an event, and so the speaker was like, you know, everybody here that's being honored, you know, you guys are the ones working behind the scenes, but it might be time for some of you guys to start thinking about being the candidate. And so I was just like, hmm, (laughs) like this is a novel idea. And so um, the thing was, though, um, it was a very short time 
before the end of the qualifying period. So it was literally like, okay, the opportunity, the seed was planted. Um, a couple other folks around town uh, kind of co-signed that, like, you will be perfect. Like, we need a good candidate to run. And so I had about a week to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, I don't know how to run a congressional campaign, but, you know, if the spirit is leading me in this direction, let me just – go for it. You know, what do I have to lose? And so I went for it and uh, I qualified the day before the last day and uh which was uh February 8th is when I qualified. The deadline was February 9th at 5 p.m. So um yeah, we jumped right in there and and learned on the job, but it was an awesome experience and I'm so glad that I took that leap. What did you consider most difficult in that process? Mm. Raising money. The most well, raising money being like one of the big things. Everybody talks about raising money because the the biggest thing for me, and I I refer to it as the biggest slap in the face for me, was uh, when I quickly learned that politics is really just about raising money and getting elected. It's really not about your platform. It's really not about your experience, your education. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is really raising money and getting votes. Mm. I thought that (laughs) politics was about the people. I thought it was about uh, being able to come up with good ideas and solutions, working on your platform. I had no idea. I was like literally like a month into it when I first heard about fundraising. Um, Through my work, I have the the opportunity to meet some amazing people. And um, someone who I've known for some years, uh, I found out once I uh, became a candidate, is that her background was actually in political fundraising. I had no idea. And so about Mm. a month into the campaign, she and I had a phone call, and she was just like, Adia, what are you doing? Now, at the time, she was working for another campaign, so she really, you know, she we were just, you know, on the phone as friends. And she was like, Adina, what are you doing? She was like, do you know you're supposed to be raising money? Do you know that all that matters right now is raising money? She was like, March 31st is coming up. If your campaign is going to make a difference, you've got to raise money. And I'm like, really? I was like, so i got two weeks to raise money. She was like, you know, that's all you should have been doing. And I had no clue. I didn't know, you know, when you qualify, you don't get, or I didn't you know, get a guidebook, I didn't get directives, and really what I found out quickly, what I really found out is in addition to the money and the votes, it's about getting that co-sign or that nod from the establishment, and I was not the establishment candidate, and so it became very clear how the debt was stacked against me from the beginning. And so even when I was attempting to get certain help or, you know, attempting to, like, reach out and, and, you know, get answers. I mean, how do you know how to run for Congress? You know, I'm trying to get answers to folks. And, I mean, they're just telling me no. Like, we're not going to help after the primary or just not any response at all. No feedback, no nothing. And so um, that was really difficult. That was, like, a a huge, like I said, a a huge slap in the face. And, um, Coming off of the experience I had just had a couple months before of helping Doug Jones win and and make it to Washington, D.C., I was a bit hurt. Like, really? You know, we we saw the articles about everything that black women did and it's time to support Mm -hmm. black women and black women want more than your thanks. You know, I'm like, I'm living 
and a living example of that. And uh, and what was even more hurtful to me is that some of Doug Jones' uh, team and even people I worked with when I volunteered with the campaign were working for my opponent. And so it just oh, really wow. just, uh, yeah, like literally the people who I worked with, who, you know, whose numbers I had, who we text the night of the election and they're congratulating against my campaign. And so, you know, all this came at me fast. This was all the first month of the uh, of the campaign. So uh, it was a lot of, of soul searching and, and a lot of trying to understand what does this all mean and what is the real purpose of my candidacy because it became clear really quick uh, just because of the differences between me and my opponent that uh, that a lot of the, the, the politics were going to be both than they were. They were. You, you know, we 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 hear uh, like when folks are outspoken, you know, like three of us, for instance. You know, you hear mm-hmm. people say, "Well, well, you should run for office." And now, yeah. you know, and then right. somebody like yourself steps up, and then, boom! It 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 it, it quickly turns from, uh, you know, like you said, issues to what sounds like to me a grand, just a marketing campaign. Yes. The, the issues that you raise are just the marketing get folks to give you money. Is was that kind of yes. how you experienced it? Yes, yes, and then even understanding how to raise money and what you do. I mean, there is. I'm telling you, this this uh, four months experience that I had, I have learned so much about politics um, in these four months. But I mean, it, it's a huge learning curve to go from never being involved in politics to putting together a congressional U.S. congressional campaign. So, yeah, I mean, the marketing is part of it, um, but even who do you call? You know, how do you know the big donors? You know, I'm in a Republican state, so it's like how do I know the top Democrats to contact who are even going to be able to donate money? So a big source, really the main source of the money I was able to raise was people that I already knew, um, personal contacts I already had, uh, family members. I really was at the the first stage, which is contacting friends and family. Like that was really, aside from people who would, uh, you know, hear about my story on social media or in the media coverage I did receive. Um, I was on MSNBC, so that definitely helped, and um, Refinery29 did uh, a story. So there were, you know, other ways to raise money, but, you know, as I learned as the months went on, there's actually steps and, and pieces in place to raise money for political campaigns, which the general public, you know, we don't know about that. We, we were not privy right. to that information because it really doesn't matter to us. So, yeah, I had all those hurdles to get past. And then the other thing, uh, which is a big thing when you're running for office, is name recognition. Now, the district that mm-hmm. I was running in is comprised of 13 states. Oh, I'm sorry, 13 uh, counties, 13 counties in, uh, in Alabama. And so I really didn't have any relationships in any of these counties except for two of them, the county I lived in, the neighboring county. And, uh, and so I had to overcome that hurdle because my opponent was Miss America 2013. So even if you didn't know her name, even if you didn't know anything, all the media was Miss America or former Miss America is running for Congress. Mm-hmm. So I was also... Right going up against that. And then she's white with blonde hair. 
I'm black, mm. and I'm not white hair, blonde hair, uh, white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. So I was, you know, up against that reality as well, and um, and and the reality of racism really, really hit home. That was another thing that was an eye opener for me. I mean, not that I, didn't I mean, know not that. that racism didn't exist. I mean, like, you know, D'Angelo said what we talked about, you know, those years back on the show. I mean, we know racism is real, but it's really something when um, when leaders, particularly black leaders, tell you to your face that you're not going to win because you're black, um, you can't mm. do this because you're black. Yeah. You know, and that was just like, that just became the common thread, or we're not going to endorse you because you're black and most of the people here are white as a reason, you know, why I I was going to be successful or not. It wasn't about my resume because they couldn't argue that. It wasn't about my platform because they couldn't argue against that, but it was literally the color of my skin. It wasn't even money. They didn't even bring up money. It was uh, my skin color. And so uh, well, that prevented me damn. from getting endorsements. Yeah. I mean, like, where it wasn't even – I mean, the, the moment that happened the first time, I'm just like, whoa. I mean, it took all the wind out of me, and I'm thankful my communications director slash campaign manager was in the room to witness it. Like, I didn't have to witness it by myself when it happened. But, yeah, I mean, it just was straight like that. Like, you're not going to win. You know you can't win because you're black. Straight like that. So, so they yeah, have you thought about – I know you work a lot with young people. Have you thought about, Mm -hmm. um, because I think young people who have an interest in maybe pursuing a high office or elected office, they need to know these realities, these things that you're trying to really, because it's, I've worked with a couple of elected officials out in L.A., and one of the things that bothered me was that if you weren't down with somebody's established camp, it was hard to get in at all. That's right. you almost had to get the blessing from some congressperson or some state senator yes. or some major donor who's been doing it for years. And so, as D'Angelo said, people make it, oh, well, you, you have a voice and people like you. Why don't you run? If it was that easy, it's just not. And I exactly. Just said, I, I, I was wondering if, you, with the, with the, if you're going to incorporate some of the work you do with young people to kind of hip them mm-hmm. to the realities that if they want to pursue high office, um, they need to know these things sooner than later. Yes, absolutely. And that really, that was my takeaway because the work that I've been able to do in communities around the country, um, I could see as I was a candidate, I could see the real value of the work and the foundation I've laid. Now, as a candidate, I couldn't put those things into practice. I couldn't implement them with my campaign, but I saw how they could be used. And so um, as I'm shifting and and seeing how we're going to take these experiences and relationships that I was able to build forward, that is really a key is uh, the education portion and how hip-hop needs to be, must be a part of that dialogue and how we can really shape what politics looks like in the future. Because, see, the thing is, like you, I mean, what you said, Chris, was spot on. You have to get that blessing, which I did not know. I mean, I'm just like, hey, y'all, I I know how to work it. I know how to speak. I know how to engage different audiences. Let's get it. You know, that's what my mind frame was. But as we went through the weeks, I saw that that uh, co-sign or that endorsement was really important. But what we were able to do – with my campaign, without that endorsement, without a lot of the media attention that my opponent got, um, and and the moves we were able to make throughout the nation um, 
with, like, my opponent, I think she raised, like, over 10 times the amount of money that I raised and had, like, every major endorsement that you really need in Alabama. But with all of that, um, we were still able to to over 11,000 votes, which was remarkable. And we were able to get the eye and the ear of all the leaders of the state. So even those who endorsed her, and some people told me, like, you know, you're you're a great candidate. I love everything that you say. I love everything that you're doing. I love the, the campaign, but I'm going with her. But what we were able to do is to give hip-hop placement, because I became known as a rapping congresswoman, which was just kind of happenstance. It wasn't supposed to happen like that. They, all my advisors were telling me, don't let people know about my hip-hop connection. So initially, it was like, okay, let's wow. keep the hip-hop, Dr. D. Yeah, that was the initial thing. Like, let's keep the hip-hop, Dr. D. under wraps. Like, let's not let people know about that side. But as the weeks went on, it just, you know, I, I am who I am. And uh, by April, by the end of April, it became clear that the hip-hop piece was actually one of my strengths. And so uh, mm-hmm. I ended up being blessed to, to have a DJ. Uh, so I actually had a campaign DJ. And uh, we mm. started coming up with strategies. But, again, this was like the last three weeks of the, uh, of the campaign. But we were able to implement and do these different things, these techniques and these skills that – we're now looking how to translate that into uh, voter education because we can have great candidates all day, but if we don't educate the uh, the voting public, then we really miss out. And I think uh, that's one thing that was revealed to me. As much as we tell black folks to go to the polls, you know, our, our ancestors died, we don't really understand politics. We don't understand right. fundraising, political fundraising. You know, we're not really taught these things, and we don't really understand outside of voting in the booth. We don't understand how politics works. And that's really how you, you get change to happen is by being engaged with the system and, and using your political influence. And so that's that's really something that, that we're doing. That's really going to be um, a big piece of how I take this experience and move forward with it. So, like I said, we got over 11,000 votes and um, a lot of people excited about me who I am, what I'm able to do. And so we're going to use this momentum and keep rocking with it. So I, I want to pick up on that because uh, one of the things that fascinated me about you and your background was your use of, of, of hip-hop in, um, for instance, your hype curriculum and, 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 yes. and using hip-hop as therapy. So it sounds to me like this could all be part of the same tree, so to speak, or a, a branch from the from the same tree. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about your your hype curriculum and how you how your I don't know if you worked it into your your campaign. I know you alluded to that, or and mm-hmm. how you plan on developing it, developing it moving forward. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, well, uh, with the hype curriculum, I actually developed it while I was a doctoral student. It uh, began as my doctoral dissertation, and so. When I defended my dissertation, 
uh, my my panel was just really blown away by everything I was able to put together, and so they encouraged me because my dream was already to have my dissertation published as a book. I had said that from the beginning, but they actually saw the vision in my defense, and so they gave me a couple names of publishers. And the following year, I piloted the program, and uh, we really saw some big changes and influences at the corrections facility where we were using it. And so, pretty much, a curriculum is twelve sessions. We cover a variety of topics from um, understanding uh, strong emotions, family issues, grief and loss, uh, goal setting. We we cover all these issues, and within each session, we present rap songs and give the students the rap lyrics to follow Mm -hmm. along, and we discuss the lyrics, and and not even just so much the lyrics themselves, but how the lyrics resonate with the youth. And so we help them to open up and talk about their experience and dialogue with each other about um, how these different topics have influenced them. And then the last four sessions, we help them to start formulating goals and a long-term plan, how we can take life experiences, good, bad, and the ugly, and use that and shift it into lifelong goals and career aspirations. And so um, my book was published the year after I graduated, and uh, I began getting media attention, and, and everything pretty much took off with the book, and I began training professionals all over the world. And so uh, curriculum, just in itself and the way I developed it, it does have a a political edge to it. One thing that makes hype unique in addition to the use of rap music is that in every session we talk about how oppression impacts that subject. So like when we're Mm. talking about the subject of friends, peer pressure, and energy, we talk about how oppression can impact who your friends are, who your circle is, how you experience, how you, you know, your neighborhood and and how you become friends with people and and things like that. And so, or within the the grief and loss session, we talk about how oppression impacts how people pass away, how we can look at, you know, the the most uh, common or the top form of uh, death within black culture and white culture and see how oppression plays into both. And so um, just by the nature of the way I developed the curriculum, you know, we have that political edge. And so what we're looking to do now is uh, because beyond the curriculum, I also was doing work within a community, doing uh, community events that brought out multiple generations to begin having these dialogues about emotional wellness, about understanding the power of music, about uh, media consumption. You know, we're having all these all these different events. And so um, now we're looking at how we can integrate the subject of uh, political education into that. Because we can't talk about any subject without talking about politics because it affects everything. Right. People that say, oh, I'm not involved in politics. You are, though. <laughs> you know, everything that, that we do and, and encounter the politics. So it's important that we, we understand that. And so um, that is going to be, like I said, a major focus of the work that I'm doing moving forward. How's the uh, how's the artistic community, the artists themselves? You get a lot of support from uh, some hip hop artists over the years. I, guess. I actually did. Yeah, yeah. Over the years with the curriculum, I've gotten so much support 
from all kind of artists, man. Like, it's just really been um, just beautiful to see because everything that I'm doing with Hype, whether it's with the curriculum or uh, the Hype movement, which is the mentoring work I do in the community, is coming straight from my heart. So to get the uh, the support of different artists and, um, and you know, different tastemakers just around the industry has been inspiring has for been me. Inspiring. And so now as the conversation shifts and, and uh, mental health and hip-hop is like now, I mean, we're talking about it all the time. It's just really cool to know that I was on the cutting edge of that because uh, this marks the 10th anniversary of uh, me getting my publishing deal for Hype. And so at the time... There was nothing published, you know. There was one book called Rap Therapy that was published, um, and and other than that, you know, the dialogue really wasn't happening. So that was really cool. And then as far as the campaign goes, um, you know, I got support from different artists. Um, probably the biggest artist I got support from was um, David Banner, who has been um, a mentor of mine for the last several years and somebody I've worked with in the past. But, yeah, he definitely um, supported the campaign on social media and uh, really just showed me love, you know, just throughout the, the course of the experience. So, yeah, it's been really cool. And what, what's the name of your book? The name of the book is Hype, Healing Young People Through Empowerment a hip-hop therapy program for black adolescent boys. That that sounds kind of like uh, some of books like by Jawanza. What's the brother? The, 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 yes, Jawanza Kanjufu. That's my Kanjufu, publisher. Kanjufu, yes. <laughs> yes, that's oh, who published okay. my book. <laughs> yes, okay. yes, yes, okay. yes. Yes, he was yeah, actually the publisher that they recommended. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah, so he he definitely um, was instrumental in in my success, and um, he was one of the publishers I sent my manuscript to, and he jumped on it immediately. So it it's been awesome, and just even having him as a as a resource and a sounding board, especially as we look at how the discussion about black boys and men has right. evolved over the last six years. Yeah, to have him, you know, as someone I can call on has been amazing. Right, so, so some like, of the changes kinda, in development. Oh, excuse me. I just wanted to kind of pick up on that point and, I, and then dive in, Chris, because uh, Juwanza's uh, Dr. Kanjufu's book it deals with the conspiracy to destroy black boys, and I was into that when I was in law school. Into him and his. Mm-hmm. So, how much of his theory did you, you know, develop? How much do you develop from? Uh, from what his work is about, because um, it sounds like a natural marriage, honestly. Yeah, and it's interesting because I grew up with my mom having all of Dr. Kanjuku's books in the house. Like, she she loved all of his work. But when I was writing the book, I really, or I should say the dissertation, I didn't use a lot of his work at that time because a, a big piece of, of the work I was doing from the dissertation standpoint was um, having a foundation and looking more at hip-hop and rap and, and trying to give credence to that because at the time there really wasn't 
anything that was, I mean, it, you could count on one hand the number of publications that had been done at that time speaking about hip-hop in this type of way. Um, but when I uh, started working at the juvenile correction facility where I implemented the curriculum, where we piloted the program, I started delving more into his work, and it was more so like it was a co-sign to, to the foundation of my theory. And um, and I more used his work as I was coming up with the, the training model and uh, the facilitative materials that I used as I went on. But, yeah, he really – the things that we see now and some of the conversations that we're having, yeah. I mean, he was speaking about this 30 years ago. So it's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, you know what I mean? When you look back and, and how relevant that material still is. So I could I, 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 the, the changes in music, period, hip-hop, I mean, it's evolved. Um, uh-huh. I mean, I, I, you know, I'll date, I'll date myself. I go back to Eric B. and Rakim. Public enemy. Okay. So, okay. From that, that is what we have now. I've just and I've worked in the music business. I just know that the industry itself has changed so much. Has have has the evolution and changes in hip hop as a business had any impact on the work you do? It has, and it's it's really beautiful timing uh, because when I was working on hype, when I first started it as a dissertation, this was oh three oh four. And so hip-hop was still very much the outlier, you know, kind of treated like the the evil stepchild of, of music. But when we look at where it is today and the voice that hip-hop has and the influence and how the biggest artists and movers and shakers within the culture influence the larger culture globally, um, it has helped yeah. me tremendously. In the beginning, especially in, like like I said, the early dissertation phases, it was just proving that rap was not just a tool to, to, to encourage kids to kill other kids. You know, I mean, it was really that primal, the way people thought about it. But now I don't even have to work it at trying to, to boost hip-hop up. People are coming to me. And it was hilarious, even on the campaign trail, you know, some of the areas I went to, most of the areas I went to were pretty rural. And um, and some of the places where I went to speak, it was like pretty much an all-white, older, very rural Alabama audience. And uh, once I started letting my hip-hop come out, uh, people would, like, older people would come up to me at the end, like, you know, I've always wondered – what's the difference between rap and hip-hop? You know, and it was just so cute. But I'm just like, look at how we evolved where they're curious. I mean, this is like the last person that you would think would even care one way or the other, but they want to engage in dialogue and hear from me about the nuances and, and how the terms came to be. And so for me and my work, it makes me more marketable. It makes me much more palatable. Um, I don't have to, to work to prove as much or advocate as much for hip-hop because at this point we're all pretty much on the same page. Hip-hop is influential. I mean, even if people mm-hmm. don't like it, they can't deny the impact. Yeah. And so that has been a huge shift. The other shift is the fact that hip-hop has been given a seat at very reputable tables. So people care and they value what hip-hop has to bring. Even if they don't get it, they might not really 
think they want to be engaged with it, but they know that there's something there. So that has helped me tremendously. And, and uh, again, like the, the things we were able to do, I actually put out a song during the campaign. I was stressed out one day, and I'm like, you know what? I got to get in the booth. I need to write. And, you know, everybody just wanted to deal with it. But it ended up, like, really becoming a thing, and I didn't know that it was going to. But I'm like, this is where we are in the space of hip-hop, you know? So how do we use this to push the culture forward, but then also to, to shape politics? The same way we've done with mental health care, the same way we've done with fashion, you know, it's almost like this is the next frontier of how we use the culture to really push uh, politics. So like you mentioned, you know, public enemy was definitely political. I mean, we can't, I mean, that oh, yeah. cannot be denied. They were a political group, and they were speaking on issues and topics that, like I said, are still relevant right now, but they weren't really into politics per se. As we think about politics as a system. And so now it's time, this is this was my perspective and how I'm moving forward. Now it's time for us to actually infiltrate that. We saw a bit of that with the, the win of uh, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in Atlanta. Um, you know, how she really got there. Really got there because of hip hop. You know, shout out to T.I. and Killer Mike, you know, for giving her that last boost because she didn't win by much. But uh, right. it's like now, you know, let's really really infiltrate and, and get into the system. So, yeah, the shifts in the culture have helped me so much. Well, you know what's interesting, though, is that, that when you mentioned, because I lived in Brooklyn, um, mm-hmm. you know, back in the, the late right. 80s, early 90s. So, you know, when Biggie first came out and, you know, talking about public enemy, and it seemed like like the Northeast was kind of like the epicenter of political yes. thought as it, as it spoke to hip-hop. I mean, yes. with what's going on now in the South, do you think that there's a – the South is becoming a hotbed for progressive political activity, like with your, the work you've done, Reverend Barber in um, North Carolina, yeah. the brother of Mississippi. Yeah. I mean, has, has uh-huh. it shifted South now where that, is, where that spark's coming from? It has. It has, and that's why I think this is prime time for hip-hop to jump in there because the eyes are open now. You know, people people are seeing things that have been going on, but I guess we just kind of had our blinders on or rose-tinted glasses, you know, wanting to believe that it's not what it is. And so um, I definitely think that the South is rising up and, and is primed to be that example again. And when we look at even how how music uh, is, is now, I mean, the South, the Southeast is like the hotbed for what's going on with music. And so um, I, I just think it's the, the perfect marriage right now. And, and, yeah, like, people are ready. But the thing about the South is that, um, you know, a lot of times things, things things are – I mean, I guess this is anywhere, but uh, the status quo keeps things as they are. And a lot of towns in the South, though, are, are old towns with the same families in place. And so as people are waking up and rising up, that – uh, oppressive energy looms very heavy. And so I think for, for the I South to really continue to rise up and, and be that influence, 
we it has to be a coming together. You know, it has to be um, some momentum coming at the uh, from some kind of national source or some kind of national collective to really give it that boost. And, and this is what we saw in the civil rights era. Like even though the South was the was the spot where it happened, a lot of that energy and momentum came from people uh, coming down from northern states or western right. states to come and, and and lend their support. So I think we're at that place. Again. Great. I agree. Yeah, definitely. Okay. I definitely see it. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're kind of coming near the end. I, I, one thing I want to talk about, I wanted to bring up um, as you talk about voter education, voter engagement. Um, one of the things that Still, surprisingly, is is a is a is a story that's not being told is voters and you know the, the with the recent Supreme Court uh, decision uh, that that allows you know secretaries of state to 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 purge voter rolls if you don't vote and they send you a postcard and that postcard comes back to them they'll purge you off the vote. What what? How do you see? Uh, are you planning to address that that issue? And how do you see, for instance, the role of hip hop? One thing, one of the things I find interesting is, as part of your curriculum, is when you talk about using lyrics to, you know, express or uh, use as a, a jumping jump off point uh, for mm-hmm. a, a theme theme of discussion. Uh, I'm wondering if if there's there's room for you know that issue in 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 you know your overall philosophy and process. Absolutely, and I am so glad that you brought that up. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you know we we had a lot of ground we, to cover and what we were doing with this campaign. And um, a lot of obstacles up against us, but because I am a strong woman and I was a really strong candidate, and like I said, the hip hop ended up coming through at the end. Um, a yeah. lot of people got excited to go vote for me because they became aware about, you know, these these systemic uh, pieces that were in place that were intentionally um, suppressing my campaign. And so uh, we, uh, throughout the 13 counties, we had uh, different people, you know, who were kind of chiming in, letting us know what was going on Election Day. And what we heard at two um, predominantly black polling places is that people who were coming to vote for me were getting turned away at the polls. And so because they weren't, they weren't registered anymore. Mm. And, um, and so this might have been maybe about a week after that um, my DJ, uh, who uh, who lives in Macon County, he called me up and he was just like, "Man, people are still mad that they were uh, taken off the voting rolls." And so when he called me, it might have been two days after that Supreme Court ruling. And what I told him, I said, "I'm upset too. You know, I'm I'm upset and frustrated that they were removed from the rolls, but our Supreme Court just said that that is okay and just said that's legal and this is a new reality that we live in." And I said, "So this." is more confirmation as to why voter education is everything. We could be mad all day about how these laws work, and even um, I'm sure you guys heard in, in Alabama just even what is required to register to vote and, and the issues with IDs and, and, you know, state IDs and things like that. 
as much as it, it is uh, unfortunate right now, this is our reality. And so we need to make it a thing where people are are pushed in their own spirit to want to go vote. You know what I mean? Like where it becomes yeah. it's almost yeah. like a thing where where people say, well, you can't do this. And we're like, oh, watch me do it. Who said I can't do it? You know what I mean? Like telling people they can't right. to, to reverse psychology and to, you know, Go and do it, and I just hold on. Right. And I think this might be the thing. This might be, you know, telling people because folks will be like, "Oh yeah, I'm registered to vote." Like in Alabama, that's one thing about Alabama. People are proud to vote, proud to be registered. Of all the places I live, this is like the most politically engaged place I have lived in. But as much as we register to vote, a lot of people don't go vote. And then when they do go, they don't know what they're voting for. And so this has to be a part of what we are doing and helping people understand. The other thing is that voter turnout is so low. In some of the counties, voter turnout was only 16%. So, you know, I mean, that that is just, yeah. I mean, that, that is just heartbreaking, but why is it so low? One, yeah, voter suppression. Two, here in the state of Alabama, we only have one day to vote. We don't have early voting. So you vote on that Tuesday from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. There's a lot of manufacturing jobs here, though, so that becomes an issue. The other issue um, that I noticed that that is a hindrance to voter turnout is the fact that we only know there's an election when we have candidates that spend money on advertising. We don't get information from the feds or from the state or from the county government telling you, hey, we got an election coming up. How do we know there's an election? Because we start seeing yard signs or we start seeing ads on TV, but that all goes back to the candidate. And so it's these different issues that I began seeing um, as as a candidate that uh, are barriers to how we go and vote and, and that suppress our vote in so many different ways. So um, that is, is really a big focus of what I'm going to be doing and, and is at the heart of um, these projects that we're working on um, as we move forward in the next couple months, um, you know, because, I mean, it's an issue. They're so they suppress, Our votes are suppressed in so many different ways, you know, if we just really yeah. sat and thought about it, you know what I mean? It, it just would, would be mind-blowing. But this new, this new thing that came down from the Supreme Court, it just makes it clear that the powers that be really don't care about us voting. Matter of fact, they would probably prefer that we didn't get out to vote. And so that yeah, should yeah. be proof to us about how important our vote is. And, and I told people, this is even on the campaign trail, you know, I was telling people, especially black people, I'm just like, y'all, everything that y'all think about politics is true. It is trickery. It is about who they choose. They do try to select. But the one thing that could break that is us going to vote. The only way that yes. they keep these pieces in place is because they know only between 16 and, like, 25% of people are going to go to the polls. So it's easy to control that amount. But when we start going to register and, and going to vote in large numbers, we break that system wide open. We break it wide open. All right. Well, that's a strong point to, to end it on because I, I, I want folks to just let that sink in. If the vote yeah. wasn't important, they wouldn't work so hard and do so many devious things to yeah. to keep you from voting. So yep. break that cycle. So um, mm-hmm. all right. Uh, 
Any final words you want to leave with? Uh, you want to direct folks to your organization and your website? Yes, 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 definitely. So um, I have enjoyed this conversation, and I would love for you guys to, uh, to follow my work and see the work I've been doing at letsgethype.com. That's letsgethype.com. You can learn more about the hype movement, the hype curriculum, and uh, me, Dr. Dia. You can uh, also follow me on Instagram at Dr. Dia, on Twitter at Dr. Dia, and um, I have a Facebook page that I neglected so much during the campaign, but we're going to get back at it, and that's uh, Dr. Adia Winfrey. So um, a lot of places where you can find me, but yeah, check me out on letsgethype.com and and see uh, the work and learn a little bit more about the theory, and I just really want to encourage everybody that listens to this interview to know that anything is possible. I had no clue at the end of 2017 or New Year's 2018. I had no clue that I was going to be a congressional candidate. I had no clue that I was going to be among 70 other black women in Alabama making history by running for office. But the stars aligned and it happened. And despite every odd and obstacle against me, I was able to make a huge influence and an impact. And so we all have that power. We just have to be brave enough to go for it. And so I would encourage you as we, you know, come up on this last half of 2018, use the rest of these weeks and months to really go for something, something that's in your heart or in your spirit or aligned with work that you've already been doing and make a difference in your own corner of the world. So that's my biggest thing is stay hype, y'all. Healing young people through empowerment. Find your voice. That's what I'm about. Dr. Dia. All right, well, that's that's some good that's some good last words. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes uh, because Dr. Dia, you have an open invitation. I hope you can come back um, yes. and and talk some more about your work. Okay, well, thank you, Chris. Thank you, Dr. Dia, and for everyone out there listening, thank you and stay hyped. Peace. Yay! Peace. <laughs> Great. Good job, guys.